Welcome to Unsolicited Bridge Picks. I am your host, Charles, and with me is... Bree Bills. And as the saying goes, we offer all of Vermont's wonder... And none of its trolls. There you go. We're really doing great here finishing each other's sentences. We're just, it's, we're just so in sync. Find us on Twitter, Unsolicited VT. And uh, we've got a fun episode for all of you bridge voyeurs today. We're talking baseball. Baseball. Maine? To Vermont, to San Diego. <laughs> America's pastime. Yeah. America's pastime. And we're pretty excited to invite onto our show Matt Moore. Who is Vermont's leading socialist sports scholar. <laughs> our listeners wanted to chat with Matt about his uh, sports knowledge. Yeah. And maybe get angry about sports. Uh, where could they find him? Yeah, you can chat him up on Twitter at V-T-S-H-I-C. Which is Vermont Sports History Stats and Information. Yeah, so before jumping into that interview, I wanted to give a bit of history and context of the Lake Monsters to make sure uh, that the conversation is easier to follow for those of you who, like me, don't know much about the topic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. after almost 30 years of not having a baseball team in Burlington, Bernie worked his tuckus off in his early years as mayor to get a double-A minor league team to come to the city. Sanders described this feat 25 years later in this way, quote, After a series of lengthy negotiations with the Eastern League and the owner of one of its teams, my administration, with the help of some local and very dedicated baseball buffs, was successful in bringing the Vermont Reds to Burlington. You, I got you the whole thing in a Bernie. Okay. This double eight league team thrilled baseball fans who watched them play at Centennial Field, which boasts a grandstand that is the oldest complete grandstand structure in use in minor league baseball. End quote. <laughs> yeah. At the end of 1988, the team sadly headed for warmer climbs, and we were without a home team to root. Climbs? Yeah. Climates? Yeah, warmer climbs. No way, that's... Okay. <laughs> Read more you're poetry. The, you're the, nope. <laughs> Refuse. Go on. And we were without a home team until 1994 when Ray Pecor, owner of the Lake Champlain Transport Company, which is the ferries. What was life like for Burlington residents those whole six years without a, a baseball it team? It was terrible. And so... Woo. PCOR was was hailed as a savior, right? Mm -hmm. And he brought over an affiliate team of the Montreal Expos that had formerly been in Jamestown, New York. So they played as the Vermont Expos until 2005. And then they changed their name to the Lake Monsters. In 2011, the team changed their affiliation to the Oakland A's. In 2020, they were shed from the minor leagues. Which, yep, indeed. Which brings us to today. As VT Digger reported in February 2021, Ray Pecor sold the team, quote, to the investment group Nos Emul. I don't have a good French, sorry. Uh, (laughs) Baseball club led by Chris English, a former hedge fund manager and a longtime owner and operator of teams in independent and college summer leagues, end quote. So that's the brief history which we'll go over with matt so you don't have to memorize all that right now yeah the whole the rest of the episode pretty much is uh, <laughs> us chatting with matt and him educating us 
if you're interested in the economics of of minor league, there's debate just constantly about the local economic benefits of minor league or professional teams. Only idiots but... debate it. We all know. <laughs> us, us in the know. We know. <laughs> Y'all in the know. <laughs> I'm, I was like, I'm going to read some random people's dissertations. Oh, God. Um, but what we do know is that owners make profits off of these multi-million dollar investments, mainly pulling revenue from tickets, advertising, concessions, and merchandise. Since the MLB pays for a huge amount of the overhead, from the players to the coaches, most equipment and more. The but not the ball boys. <laughs> um, They're volunteers. Yeah, so the amount of profit that owners can make is basically only limited by the team's ability to draw crowds and the terms of the stadium lease that they land with whatever local stadium they they play in. Well, I'm sure, uh, since we live in Vermont, that we would not... Give them a free ride. Yeah. Well, it, it used to be a, it used to be pretty stiff, but uh, in March 2012, according to reporting from the minor league, they reported that the Lake Monsters had struck a new deal with UVM to lease Centennial Field for this is actually the number one dollar per year for 20 years. Did I lose you for a minute there? Me personally, or my soul. <laughs> You know, what's great about that is that uh, UVM doesn't really pay property taxes. And so it's just a, like a, a, a handout to Chris English and normal baseball club. It's a, it's a win-win. How? Right? How so? How is that a win-win? Wait, I just want to point out that before this, before the $20 for 20 years bullshit, there was an annually renewed lease, which was roughly $40,000 a year. Yeah, that sounds better. So you're telling me if I get me and, and, and uh, 15 of my friends together and claim that we are a baseball team, we can live in Centennial Field for $1 per year. I, I don't think that's the way that works, Charles. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, yeah. So the then interim president of UVM, John Bramley, called this a win-win deal that, quote, keeps the lake monsters here for the foreseeable future and allows them to invest in facilities and field improvements, end quote, while making use of Centennial Field and keeping baseball in Vermont. The idea for this was that the team would not have to pay a ton of money to lease the field and that in return, they would invest all sorts of money in improvement and renovation to the field, which to be fair, that has happened just in the years around that change. There were about two or three million dollars of improvements or uh, put into Centennial Field, and Ray Pecor has been able to play the savior there as well, even gaining some national recognition for that. So um, not in any national things that I read. <laughs> no, there was just a ballpark digest thing. You know, it would be really cool a uh, local baseball team that was maybe like player owned cooperatively so with that let's do it let's do it let's put in some little music to uh to show that we're going to have a is that that's the music right i think so yeah matt thank you so much for joining us on unsolicited bridge picks 
We hope you have arrived with some bridge picks that we did not ask you to prepare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what we do on the podcast. Back out of we just... Total, yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited to talk with you, Matt, because I uh, grew up in New England, and you, know, you, you also you grew up right in Burlington. Um, and I grew up being a very big sports fan. But the older I got, the harder it was for me to like enjoy New England sports because growing up it used to be like the Yankee fans were always the worst just like (laughs) terrible people just like scum and then like the Red Sox finally broke their curse and the Patriots started winning and then the Celtics were winning and like New England sports fans became just as obnoxious as like New York City Yankee fans and I just couldn't I was just like I just I can't do it and then you add like Tom Brady and the whole MAGA shit and and so I am someone who surprisingly knows a good amount about sports, even though I pretend not to, so I don't get stuck in conversations. <laughs> um, I also, I haven't been paying attention for like a decade, so like my, my knowledge is definitely less. But you want to talk Nomar Garcia Parra, <laughs> let me tell you. Hell yeah, man. <laughs> I think I still have that, like, I saved that poster ad of him when I was a oh. kid. Somewhere in this apartment. Uh, nice. Awesome. In a cubby. Nice. <laughs> No, I feel you. Uh, I still hang on and watch, but uh, it's almost like you take a pause before you want to say, like, go further and speaking about fandom. It's just like, nah. And then you have to understand who, you have to ask who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. And like, what, you're right, because what kind of conversation we're going to be stuck in and is this worth it? <laughs> I'm pretty much with that in sports, too. So don't, don't feel bad. <laughs> Even us active fans are feeling bad. So wait, so you grew up in Burlington. Yep. I was a New Northland kid, yeah. You worked as a kid at the Lake Monsters games. Well, it was probably Expo back then, or... Yeah. Not to yeah, age so you, how many like... years <laughs> 20 years. A little while ago. Over 10. They're one of the very few places that almost, like, proudly advertises that, like, you can be, like, 14 or 15 and work there as a staff. And, you know, at the time, it was like, my dad was like, get a job. So it was like, all right. And, you know, my grandfather was a season ticket. You know, that was our family grew up. That was stuff we did. So my dad, in his infinite wisdom, figured, well, while you're here, you might as well get paid for it. Uh, <laughs> $6.25 an hour or whatever it was. Um, I, I must have been 15 years old, I think, honestly. Mm-hmm. But I believe the labor laws were I only worked till like 8 o'clock. That was like the cutoff. So you're really only working three hours. I mean, you know, and I worked, it was parking lot attendant. You literally would just sit there and point someone to a parking space. It was not a job that was totally necessary at all. But, you know, <laughs> you're 15, you're like, whatever, I do this for three hours. It's great. Uh, three seasons. And then my brothers worked with my brother and his friends. We all worked with them. And then we, uh, we did the good worker thing. We found that behind Trinity College, there was a basketball hoop, and we would just go play basketball. Once the parking lot was full, we'd just go play basketball. Nice. And take money because there's no need for anybody to be up there. <laughs> That's kind of what their whole, like, they blatantly were very much, this is a second, I mean, which I get seasonal employment, but they were just like, it's a second job, and this is what it is, and they were pretty proud that they could just, like, or 14 year olds is a little weird now that i think about it we we came to wanting to have you on the podcast because you have been doing some digging around the lake monsters especially with the recent changes um in terms of league and ownership 
so yeah, we wanted to take some time to dig into that a little bit with you. I am not a sports fan, except for I, I, I like playing sports, but I find I find sports fandom to be like politics fandom and it pisses me right the fuck off. <laughs> it seems to me that you see the presence of the lake monsters in our community as problematic to use a nothing word. Um, is that is that accurate? Can I say that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's problematic if people want to enjoy a night out at a at a ballpark, right? Right, or bring your kids, because really, that's what it serves as. A lot of people they go, and yeah, you can say you're watching a baseball game, but you know, there's bouncy house things for the kids. There's yeah. all kinds of different activities. It's you can bring the little ones. If you leave at the fourth inning after eight o'clock. That's totally fine. Like, it's, if it's an affordable night out. Or I think the problem comes is that we have this, you know, how we view minor league baseball mm-hmm. as an entity and its role in exploiting wage labor through people who work at the ballpark as seasonal employees and the players themselves. And then obviously with this mm-hmm. new ownership group and uh, even the Picor families, how they can use their goodwill that they've built up owning the team to right. kind of wash over anything that they might do that could bring scrutiny to um and that's sports have done that the people yeah. right because on the surface what do you i mean you know what do people think when they think ray picor or trey picor his son you know it's oh yeah you know they own the ferry company and they own the lake monster that's nice mm-hmm. because the ferry hey that can shuttle me across the lake and the baseball game i can go and have a nice night out Again, and that's just that's just being on the surface level of that's what owning a team can do in terms of kind of laundering your reputation or at least building up so much goodwill that when somebody comes and questions anything that they might do that is you know not above or not ethical, whatever that might be, they you know it, it there's just almost full fledged like either you know one the media wouldn't cover it in a fair sense, I guess, because there's that pre-existing relationship of, well, people know what this, that they're this person or that they own the team. And then, you know, people just kind of go, what's the big deal? I mean, he just owns the baseball team. Who cares? Right. There's a lot of that. that can Right. Go. And it's a minor, a, a minor, minor league baseball team too. Yes. You know? Like this is such small potatoes. Right. And I think the one thing is because the Lake Monster Expos slash Lake Monsters are well, up until now, we're the longest running minor league team that they had, um, you know, because they had teams in the 80s and that they left, I think, by like 1988. Mm-hmm. It, they were gone. And Ecor then purchased a franchise in upstate New York and he relocated them to Burlington in 1994. So from 1994 to 2019, there was teams here. So I've heard it from people that I converse with him and know it's he's almost looked at as the guy who saved baseball mm-hmm. in Vermont. Mm-hmm. So when you can put that on somebody as a title, really hard to knock, uh, you know, anything off in terms of uh, the shine doesn't come off that person really easily. I mean, I've been up here since uh, 2007. Yeah. And I remember too, some point when I was at UVM, they, they cut the baseball team there. And then all those signs yeah, started popping up that were like, bring back uvm baseball so now right. obviously the one who saved baseball that's the only game in town exactly. exactly and the lake monsters have a relationship with uvm um at least 
through Centennial Field, right? Right. And I, you know, this is just kind of going on secondhand, but as I understand it, it's a pretty generous lease as well because UVM, in their mind, they don't, they're not fielding a team mm-hmm. and they're not using it. So the most important thing they use it for is overflow parking for the medical center um, mm. because there's, there's a lot of parking lots there. They don't use it for graduation. Do no, they? that's on the green. Yeah. That would be the perfect place. I mean, sure, you don't get the perfect building view. The seating's like there, and you actually would have somewhat. You could put people under like a roof or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but uh, I believe, you know, again, like I said, I don't know a lot of the particulars, but I believe it's kind of a working arrangement in that they get the lease, and then the lake monsters are essentially responsible for any upgrades that they want to make. Hmm. And there's in conjunction with them that obviously they. UVM owns it, so they have to go through the permitting process for them. But it's and, and they've you know they've made a lot of upgrades before because it used to be the bleachers were all you'd sit on cement. They put um, bucket seats and everything. Expanded. It's a far cry from what the place looked like even five ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, yeah it's kind of one of those things where UVM kind of gets a pretty okay deal out of it because they're not putting a lot of overhead into any of it, mm-hmm. um, and. They get a they get an anchor tenant that they know that they knew at least for the last twenty some odd years that they were going to be there every summer. So I know Vermont, like the rest of America, loves baseball. I know that there is a history of baseball in Vermont. There was some northern leagues back in the nineteenth late nineteenth century. I say, cue Bernie voice saying that it's the the national pastime. <laughs> the national it's the national pastime. Um, <laughs> And they would, uh, players would, would, you know, jump trains to, to get, you know, where they needed to go. I know that on Riverside Ave, you know, there's that, that plaque there about how there was a, a uh, stadium there at one point. Mm-hmm. How does that, you know, do you know a little bit about the history of baseball in Burlington and in Vermont? And then, you know, what, how does the Lake Monsters fit? Baseball's in? an old game. So there's a lot, like you said, the, the one on, um, by the Intervale was very early days for the most part a lot of it did take place in centennial field because that park is old as hell um so the, like you said there's a couple of teams in those kind of uh northern leagues and stuff and back then that was very loosely baseball is almost very decentralized at that time mm-hmm. yeah, you had the majors but minor leagues were just like well it's just if this town or this league decides to have teams hey that's what it is and if you're good enough you go on to somewhere else and that's it. And then I can't place a time on when they decided, to, essentially Major League Baseball decided on the minor league system, which was we're going to create a, essentially a funnel and we'll create a bunch of different levels. And that's where we can start placing people who we want under contract so they can expand the amount of people they have under contract and develop. And, they, and that was what they essentially decided was their development pipeline. And speaking of Bernie, he talks a lot about how he's very proud that he brought a minor league baseball team. Burlington was mayor. And at the time, it was a double-A affiliate. There was first the Cincinnati Reds affiliate and then the Seattle Mariners affiliates. And so you... So if you go back and you look at people who play on the teams, yeah, you know, Ken Griffey Jr., big name people played for these teams. My sister uh, was obsessed with Ken Griffey Jr. Around, I believe it was 1988. And this is a problem that, this is something, a theme at least that will repeat itself, is that 
Centennial Field in terms of facility was considered substandard for AA. And also, if you can imagine trying to start your season in mid to late March in Burlington, <laughs> Mud season. not exactly fun. So they were mo- they eventually the ownership group of the team moved them away from 88 to 94. There's no team here. Ray Pico purchased the team, moves them to Burlington. And at this point, it almost it's in terms of schedule wise, it becomes perfect because it's it was the level that they played at was called short season single A. It starts in June, ends in Labor Day. On, on mm-hmm. Labor Day. And most of the players in that league are guys that they've pulled out of college, you know, so then it's like, all right, their season's over. We can plug them in. But it's, it was second from the lowest rung in terms of the ladder, how you'd have to move up. So there's, yeah. Yeah. Double A is pretty surprising when you said double A. I didn't realize like for Burlington to get double A, that actually is pretty impressive. Like when I think of other cities that have a double A team, they're a hundred thousand people. Oh, for sure. And that's a big part of it too, is that, you know, I, from a that perspective, it was well. The media market's not good. There's only you know. I mean, right even now, we only have forty thousand people that live here. From that perspective, people would just say no. And that a lot of that in the '80s is when that started to happen. You saw these kind of small towns like Burlington that did mm-hmm. have teams. They lost teams to those places that had hundred thousand or more and things like that. And then maybe they repopulated themselves with these short season teams or lower level teams in the future but you know minor league baseball is always kind of so transactional it's just if the affiliate decides we don't want to renew your agreement team's gone so i assume that uh, a lot of times too like the city might give incentives yes either keep a team there or bring a team there and of course back then being held hostage for public funding was a maneuver that even minor league teams would use stadium's not good enough we need $3 million bond issue or whatever. And because they're mortified of losing a team, elected officials, they would go for it. Now, at least there's sort of been a wising up in that regard. But most places aren't doing it. It still does, unfortunately, happen. But um, yeah. most are pretty well aware that public financing for stadiums for privately owned sports teams is not a way to go at all. And really, but then, yeah, through there it was, they were affiliated with the Montreal Expos. We all know the Expos then left for Washington, D.C. For a little bit, they mm-hmm. were affiliated then with Nationals in D.C. And then they switched to Oakland Athletics. And that is who they were matched with until their demise, which came about around 2019. Baseball decided they were going to it's almost a twofold thing. They were going to, they knew they wanted to shrink the number of teams they had because they didn't want to have, it really was a labor thing. They were being accused of low wages for, because a lot of these guys in the short season level are making like $2,500 a year to play a short season. Yes, Holy it's shit. It's not glamorous at all. It's, and they were getting called out for it. And so their solution was, well, we could just take away teams. Well, with, with the Lake Monsters too, right? I remember every year seeing, you know, they'd always, advertise for people who would be willing to put up players in their home yes for host fam for for free uh season tickets and my first year out of college 
I really tried to get my housemates to agree to it. I was like, guys, let's, <laughs> let's crunch the numbers. They can sleep on the couch. Like, we'll, we'll get free season tickets. <laughs> you know, it is kind of wild because, and you, you speak about, like, the Dominican players. Some of them, this is their first time ever in the United States, and they're just plopped with this, you know, it's, it's like being a foreign exchange student yeah. the whole summer. Um, yeah, exactly. And that's a way that they get around having to house them in pain, I, I think, I don't think they can house all of them, but you know, if they can house 50% to them, they figure, yeah, it's a good deal. Then we don't have to pay as much for if they were getting hotels. I don't really know what they were doing. Using dorms. I really don't know what they were doing. Yeah, the whole operation at not just the, you know, the low Lake Monsters level, I would imagine that extended at least up to through double A in terms of that was something you would see pretty with the housing common. yeah that they would from, just be like well you can live yeah in the from hostel. what i've from what i've heard uh heard or kind of like looked at recently just in preparation for this conversation yeah depending on uh what level of the minor leagues you're in you are there are two i don't know even what they're called two subsections of the minor leagues where you're housed with a with a host family and then in the other ones you you have to pay for rent, which yeah. is from what I had heard from some some players talking about it, can be worse for the players. It's a scam. It's a scam, like a yeah. Scam. <laughs> like a lot of them are like, we can have we can afford like two hundred and fifty bucks a month, and so you end up with seven guys right. in like a, a two or three bedroom apartment, you know. And for a lot of them, they get signing bonuses. So rent is like, even if you right. said they got fifty thousand dollars signing bonus. And how many, if you're, they're just using that strictly to pay for their own housing, that's going to run out very quickly in terms of as they go up in a, in, in a matter of years, if that's what they have to be doing. Yeah. You said November 2019, uh, there are about 160 right. minor league teams. And it's made public that there are 40 or so teams that are looking at not being offered affiliate status affiliate or, or whatever yeah, yeah. yeah so so that's announced at the end of 2019 why was that even being proposed i would like to ask a, the the flip side question of that mm -hmm. why would a team like the lake monsters even exist <laughs> like like thinking about the economics and, and how baseball works now there already is a single a and a double a and yeah. a triple a like why do you need why would they why do you need them it was player control it was because the more affiliates you have, the more players you have under your contract. And like, it's just playing a numbers game. We have this many minor leaguers across all our affiliates. Look, we know well, over, um, the large majority of them are not going to make it. Right. But it was, it's, it was literally to hoard assets. To hoard talent. And that, and that, right. And, and, and I use the word asset because that's how they're viewed. They're not viewed as well, they're viewed as assets. And the league of the lake monsters in was predominantly like i said it was guys who were they could have been 18 or 19 but a lot of them were 21 22 mm -hmm. years old because they were guys who were, they graduated college and they maybe were like late round picks or that they were signed as free agents and they were signed there because like well some of their seasons in college might have extended into june so okay we'll just plug them in here for the rest of the year see how it works and we'll figure it out but most of those guys lucky thing to get past we're up to double a yeah it's just and but it doesn't matter because 
a lot of those guys aren't on guaranteed money. So it's very easy to drop them at whenever your term is up. Just no questions asked, just get rid of them. And because every year you have a replacement supply, hmm. you know, and that was how they were viewing it. But then that didn't become economically efficient anymore to have that many players on the books, coupled with the fact that it kind of entered the public discourse of how little these players were paid, yeah. how the amenities and their housing and what they could expect from a professional standpoint for a job were varied between uh, you know team to team and essentially the solution was well then we don't really need this do we we can streamline the operation and we can just kind of cut out you know, it basically equals to about cutting out a thousand players from the pool mm -hmm. because we can just decide that we don't really need to have this level of development so that does speak to charles's point of like these why does the team exist because I, I think that that makes a lot of sense that they're trying to hoard labor and assets as you said and, and they realized that that wasn't the most efficient way um, and, and cut their losses how i guess my, another question i have is how does say ray picor who owns the team how does that relate to the you know if if, if he owns the the Cincinnati Reds affiliate or whatever. How does that re relate to the actual Cincinnati Reds team? Like, what control does he have? Like, what? Why would you want it? Why would you want to own a team like this? I get why uh, a franchise or whatever might say, "Fuck you, we're done with you." But why would you want to be an owner? Because you're entitled to free. You don't pay for the labor. They pay for. It. So it's so the organ so the the minor the major league organization is paying all their salaries. So the overhead for salary was nothing. For him, it's just, well, if I can control, you know, attendance, concessions, all that kind of stuff, you can make off pretty well. And for the most part, the Lake Monsters are pretty well attended. Wait, so to clarify, um, so to clarify this, but for minor league uh, team owners, they own essentially the brand of that is the team itself. And they are free to make contracts like lease contracts, for example, like they have like uh, Lake Monsters has with Centennial Field, and they run the business of promoting that brand and then get any of the profits off of that brand, but don't have to pay the, the players themselves. All of the payment comes from the parent club. Mm -hmm. And so it's a so if you have a team, the benefit is it's a pretty sweet deal. You yeah. never have to worry about payroll for players your only payroll is your employees and as we addressed it's all minimum wage work so or less like you had you've pointed out it, it can be less for those who are you know selling right. hot dogs in the stands or exactly or and that's even true up into the major league level i believe you're not it's kind of like um if you're Being a, server, a server yeah it's that you don't get paid you get um, yeah the minimum wage for servers yeah and then the idea is they get tips but <laughs> you know, who knows if you do or not i couldn't tell you but so this uh this chopping block of uh minor league teams was announced in in what was it february 2020 officially yeah and then they kind of the major league presented this as like all right we're getting business done and now we can pay like we can increase wages and all of 
like there are some other benefits that we can give to our other players what 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 do they mean by that like how how is that affecting the rest of the players in 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 their payroll essentially well i think it kind of ties to the idea of like at least even at the parent level of major league clubs and then a lot of minor league a lot of minor league clubs it's um and we will get to this in the new lake monster ownership this isn't the only team they own some of these guys can own mm. upwards of five six seven teams and so if you're doing that i'm going to assume you have a lot of capital at hand is there any rules against that like can you own multiple teams in the same league no ray Pecor, i believe does or did for a while um and it, maybe a, and, and that's a good question on the, the league I'm, I'm not sure but this the new lake monster in the league he is and he does own another team right in the same yeah and that could be different because it's you know one of those college leagues but no i believe ray Pecor owns for a while he owned shares in a team in ottawa which i believe relocated and he owns a team outside of um the philadelphia area I don't know if he's a majority owner or not, but I know he does own shares. And and that sometimes is what happens is it's a, it's, it's the, you know, old boys club of, Hey, well, you know, let's make a group and we'll all, you know, all pitch into this to buy one team, another, and then all of a sudden you kind of peel back the layers and realize these guys have their hands in at least, you know, five to seven different teams in varying percentages of ownership. Right. Like they're, they're playing both sides. Yeah, the Lake Monsters has some bad on-field products for a while, and that's not. And, and truly, the owner can't be blamed for that. In a sense of, well, he's not the one bringing the players, and it's somebody else. So, mm-hmm. but they still to manage to turn profit because it's it's gimmicky. You know, the twenty-five cent hot dog stuff. The right. whatever that's how you get people in the stands, and that's what minor league baseball relies on is a lot of kind of gimmicked entertainment to bring people through the doors, and that can net you a fair bit of money one of the things that i'm wondering about is kind of uh i mean giving given a little bit of the conversation that we've been having about wages both of players and uh those working concessions etc i'm wondering about just generally the effect of the presence of a team like this on the local economy because i've heard people say no these teams are great for the local economy i don't know if it's the pull of tourism or what it is it's often the case it seems like these teams are not owned even locally um and so it sounds like a lot of the revenue generated is lighting the pockets of the owners of these teams do you, I, I don't know if you can discuss any more or enlighten me a little bit about what the arguments are for minor league baseball teams kind of being great for local economies well- I, I mean, I think when I hear lake monsters and what comes to my mind is like, it's family friendly. Right. Right. Like that's kind of the image. Burlington's family friendly. Yeah. Because we have this baseball team. Don't look at anything else we do. <laughs> baseball team is here. Therefore, we are family friendly. But I don't know about like the hard statistics or economics around it. Yeah. And I don't either. But I, I mean, you know, it's having a minor league baseball team like the chamber of commerce loves that stuff, right? It's very, it's just because, and you know, and you can go to the ballpark. It's a walking advertisement. Everything is for sale, not just the walls, but like this first pitch is brought to you by like everything's for sale. And so I think when you talk about Mm -hmm. how the local community likes it's because they benefit from possibly just the branding of it. Right. 
that yeah hey you know oh yeah that person saw her. it's it's the kind of old style like word of mouth marketing stuff that you know probably a lot of people who are in charge of things around here uh, still subscribe to but right it does kind of create this like yeah, our community, uh, we have a baseball team and it brings family friend, friendly fun every summer. And, you know, you got to go catch a game. And how many lists do you see of like things to do in Burlington? There's a Lake Monsters game you put on there. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's almost synonymous with putting something on the going to get a creamy or going to the waterfront. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's very the apple pie and Americana aspect of baseball, at least in terms of the commerce side of people in the Burlington local economy that they can say, Hey, you know, there's, this is, we live in a town that has attractive stuff to do. Right. Right. I, I, in terms of financials, you know, I don't know that, but definitely optics wise, it's a very powerful tool. It seems like that that's so much of what city leadership in Burlington has been pushing for a, a long time is, you know, we're looking to make this a tourist destination. We're looking to make this the most, you know, like the superlative in terms of transportation or the superlative in terms of whatever else touristy thing. One of the people who does benefit, you know, Matt, as you mentioned, is is Trey Pecor. And what Mm -hmm. I find so fascinating about the Pecor family isn't just the generational wealth, isn't just that they own the ferries that somehow make money, which, you know, I don't know if they're, you know, parody, uh, don't sue me. Maybe they're, they're bringing drugs across the lake. I don't know, (laughs) but I don't understand how else they're making money on a ferry in 2021. Like nothing about that's making sense. But, uh, Trey Pecor made a deal with, uh, Mayor Weinberger, uh, uh, six years ago or so where he loaned the city, a few million dollars uh, for Burlington Telecom and ended up earning over $5 million on the sale of Burlington Telecom, which, you know, in a back-scratching way, he gave back $1 million to City Projects. You know, it's just so funny. He's such a good guy, right? He only made $5 million off of off of all, of, all the, the, the people who live here, and he gave back 25%. Some of it went to the, the, the park. Um, and it just there's an article in Seven Days by Katie Jickling about it. About and it, the the headline is Trey Pecor made millions on Burlington Telecom. Now he's giving back. Like that's the framing. But it's really the f- it's the photo that they love chose. a good philanthropist. It's the photo they chose for this uh, article that I think is so telling about the relationships with Moreau looking lovingly in his direction. <laughs> it's Moreau looking lovingly. Next to Peter Clavel. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing. <laughs> with Dominique Picor. I guess he's the next generation. I don't know. It looks. I mean, I don't want to describe the guy, but it looks like he's wearing a mullet or a wig. He looks like Farkas. Sorry, never mind. Who? Fabio. Fabio. He looks like he looks like Vermont yeah. Fabio. <laughs> For Chilean fans, he looks like Farkas, who is okay. a famous rich guy who is like, like his shtick is giving people like a hundred dollar bills. Yeah. This, yeah. Like, okay. Yes. That's exactly what he looks like. Um, and then Brenda Torpy, and it is because they named something in Champlain Housing Trust, uh, the Pecor Family Gym and Performance <gasps> Center or something. And so, like, it's fascinating to see this family that has so much wealth and made money off of this city in, like, a time of need. You know, like, it wasn't like they were giving a loan out and asking yeah. for 7% back. 
They made millions off of this. This is not a, a, a charitable uh, thing to do. You've talked to us a little bit about how, uh, you know, Ray Pecor is kind of seen as the savior of of baseball in Burlington, um, you know, bringing it back also in 94. Uh, and we just heard from Charles a little bit about how, um, how he fits into the circle jerk that is Burlington politics and, you know, philanthropy and all of that beautiful stuff. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the passing of hands now uh, who is who is in charge now of the Lake Monsters? Well, I'm, I'm sure someone who cares about the community as much as the Pecor family would only sell them to someone local. Of course. Um, of course. Someone who is committed to the community. Yeah. And Sustainable, and sustainable communities, right? Maybe a cooperative. <laughs> maybe like a, a, the, the Burlington Telecom cooperative. Sorry, go on. I'm with you there. But yes, it was sold to an ownership group called Nos Amores Baseball Club, which stands for something love in French. It was an old, like, Montreal Expos. Our beloved. Yes. Or whatever. Yeah, something like that. And the group was was led by a man named Chris English. And Chris English is the founder of a hedge fund called Rock Fence Capital. Right off the bat, we're already just like, nope. So it's gone from wonderful Burlington philanthropists to hedge fund front. Yes. And it okay. switched leagues. So because they lost their affiliation, they were in a wilderness for a while. Nobody knew where they would land. Mm. Could they go play independent professional baseball? Or maybe they would go to where eventually they landed which is the Futures League, which is one of, I swear, like a gazillion college wood bat leagues. Everyone knows the Cape Cod League, and it feels like that should be the only one because there's tons <laughs> of No disrespect. I mean, and it was, I guess, nah, well, there's that team in Montpelier and White River Junction. They're in some other league, and they're not bad. But um, so, yeah, this will be a third. So now we're up to three of these teams in Vermont, and this Futures League has. You know, uh, they're across New England for the most part. What they do is, shocker, free labor because, and under the idea of, well, these college kids, because during the season they play with aluminum bats, but in the summer, get themselves ready for the next level, you got to play with a wood bat. You go to one of these teams, it's like that, if you've ever seen that movie, Summer Catch with Freddie Prince, it's pretty much exactly like that. It was just one of those stupid rom-coms baseball but you know it is it's a bunch of college kids show up to these teams they get to play uh play for the summer you know i'm probably in their mind like yeah, this cool is great you know yeah. uh, but they're not i paid. mean hey nothing gets me hard like whacking a bunch of wood exactly. around they're not paid because of the NCAA. you know NCAA, if they get paid they lose their amateur status and they can't go back to college so so they're in a pickle <laughs> i own a wooden bat and i'm willing to sell it to any college baseball players 50 bucks you don't need to join the league to try out a wooden bat <laughs> i got one just stand in front of the park and just start hawking it yelling at them <laughs> but then they have to pay to try it as opposed to not pay and also not get paid so mm. it sounds almost like matt that, that baseball in vermont is kind of back to where it was at the turn of the like at the end of the 19th century and yeah 
just the roving teams of guys who can show up for a summer and figure it out. Exactly. Exactly. And they use wood. Yeah. That newfangled sort of equipment. I know. You got to earn that velocity on that pit when you hit it, buddy. None of this fake aluminum crap. But that, but again, that kind of seems like, um, like it fits into the, the branding and the marketing of like, oh, the summertime, a fun American family activity, old timey. You know, it definitely is some branding that can sell. Right, and I don't actually. I would imagine there's going to be little to no changing and how they brand, how they market, the events they right. do, things like that. Because um, like I kind of said, sometimes the action on the field is secondary or third. A lot of teams, it's about how much promotions can you run to get people in the doors. And baseball is just like, the, almost like the conduit. Just like, yeah, we're just providing a broader sense of entertainment. And I like to say, it's, it's funny because you go from affiliated ball, where a lot of what they say about the minor leagues is, are you going to see the future stars of tomorrow? Well, they'll say the same exact thing with yeah. these guys. The issue is the minor league guys at least got paid poorly for the privilege of being to- called. They were the- told they were the future stars of tomorrow. These guys don't get anything. Um, they get the idea that they could get drafted, that they could have an opportunity to play. Cause, Oh, I'm getting to play in front of scouts. They might see me and they might know that like, I go back to school and I have a good senior year. I could get signed. I could get drafted. They're riding on, you know, the big ticket dream kind of thing that any pro sport in theory provides a lot of people, but doesn't come through for most people, you know? So, so this change in, in terms of league, the, the only meaningful change is for the players who are no longer getting paid, but for the owners, none of the economics there changes at all. And the major league gets to keep more of their cash by not paying these low wage. Well, wouldn't the economics change a little bit, seeing how it is a uh, hedge fund that owns it now? <laughs> oh, yeah. <it's> a... <laughs> like, wouldn't, wouldn't they be even more interested in maximizing profit at the expense of the... <laughs> oh, yeah. And he had that really, real cute line about, will we keep 25 cent hot dogs? I might lower it to 20 cents. Like, that's the whole, like, if I can get more people to buy hot dogs, you know, it's... Wait, wait, was that a line that was actually... That was said? in the Seven Days article when... I believe Sasha Goldstein spoke. That was to Chris English, and it was that. just so it was very cringe. Who's walking around with two dimes? Makes exactly, no that's mine. <laughs> Nobody. Yeah. You want to talk about this hedge fund a little bit more? Like when most people think about hedge funds, when they when we hear hedge funds post the economic collapse a decade ago, people think about real estate, but that's not the kind of hedge fund this is. No, they market themselves as. Edging long-term performance risks and providing financial security for elite professional athletes. This is a baseball hedge fund. I saw this in the show Ballers. Pretty much. And it's hard to know anything because they put all their sight behind a uh, password protection. No. And it appears that this happens after an article from The Athletic came out discussing disclosing the fact that they offered a 10 million dollar they gave a 10 million dollar loan to a major league player early in his career and that then they will charge that player high interest to recoup that loan and in many cases they can double their money 
up these guys by giving them loans early in their careers when they're underpaid and need to provide for other people. So, and are they are they choosing um, maybe players who come from families that are low income? Like, is is there a, a preying element on it? Are they specifically searching them out? Are they targeting? It certainly appears that way. Um, and they're not the only ones that do this. There's multiple firms or, you know, funds, whatever you want to call them, that are doing this. Um, and because Rock Fences, they've done a very good job at locking up information you can find on them. Uh, certainly on their website, uh, scant mentions of them, of players taking loans from them in various mm -hmm. articles, some details on how it works. But other than that, it's very scant. Whereas other ones who have been the uh, subject of lawsuits, you can glean a little more information from those <laughs> uh, because it, they had to go to court. So just to be clear, because I don't think it's been mentioned yet in the conversation, the name of this hedge fund is is Rockfence Capital, and Chris English is the head of that of that hedge fund. That kind of makes almost predatory. Well, I guess kind of hedge funds are by nature predatory yeah. loans. Extra predatory. <laughs> they make predatory <laughs> loans to up and coming players of millions of dollars, often like huge amounts of money. And then we'll be charging them like 12 to 17% interest. Yeah. And the athletic article says, well, if they don't make the majors, they don't have to pay the salary. Well, I don't buy that at all. You don't give $10 million or start yeah. $10 million <laughs> of loan payments being like, it's fine. You just don't need to pay. I, I bet that's what they tell the players. Oh, for certain, because let's also <laughs> just address that most of the players who at least I was able to find in my research that I've taken loans from are players from Latin America, players from mm. the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, you know, Colombia, places like that where uh, there is, you know, baseball is looked at as a ticket out and yeah. that it is your destiny to get out. And that just adds another layer on the years of exploitation of Latin American players in their own countries, mm. And then when they get to the state side, to the major leagues. And so what these funds are essentially causing is these, you have to get a little bit in the weeds to understand the way contracts and how that all works in major league baseball is that for the most part, guys who make the majors, their first uh, go around in the total free market happens maybe when they're 29 to 31 years old because of the way their contracts are structured, the team has most of the bargaining power practically throughout the time they reach them, throughout their minor league career, certainly. And then yeah. for a majority of the, at least their first five or six years playing professional baseball, there's something called arbitration where you can go and you can negotiate a higher rate. And the idea is you go and you do that a couple of years to get, you know, all right, hey, you're a very good player you might say all right well i'm going to negotiate and get and we're talking baseball salaries here so 10 million dollars i'll get a one-year contract with 10 million dollars great and then i'll punt the idea of a long-term contract to the following year because i can hit the free market in a year or two and i can go out maybe i'll be able to get 25 28 30 million dollars but when these players are signing these 
loan deals, the interest comes due. And in places like Rockfence, they don't care about your arbitration. They don't care about, they, they want you to get your payday, but they don't care when you get it because they're going to still be taking it from you. So the, the examples of the players, the Ronald Acuna Jr., who took a loan approaching $10 million, believe he's only like 21 or 22. He signed an eight-year, $100 million contract, which like in our terms, that's like, Great. That's life changing. And that is life changing money for him. But what he did was he took himself off the market to potentially be making more. And a large part of that is because he has to pay the interest on this loan. And so it's forcing these players into taking below market deals because they have, they have essentially a hedge fund loan shark after them. And they, they want to pay it, you know, because the idea is you don't want to let interest accrue, it's going to get worse. So they want to pay it down as much as they can. And that forces them into a situation where they don't get the full value of their labor in the free market in terms of a free agency, a baseball perspective, that they don't get to go and say, well, some team might be able to be willing to pay me much more because it's, I have to lock myself into this contract because I have debts to pay. Yeah, I know within sports, they're not that great, but I know there's a baseball union I know sports unions. That's what I was just about to all, ask. Yeah, they're not strong. It's often no. dominated by the, the the stars and the wealthiest players. Like it's not a true. It's not. I mean, it is a union, but it's not a democratic union. But like, has has there been anything like has the union, the players union, done anything about this? Like, yeah, I, I think in terms of unions, if you want to talk to the most incompetent union, it's Major League Baseball. <laughs> um, okay. Certainly the. Uh, their chair of their union who is somebody who, or at least who they, they the union has hired this guy to oversee their administration he is quoted in that athletic article you know kind of giving very latitude responses well you know we're concerned about seeing this trend but i'm like but what actionable items are you actually taking and then frankly it does come down because unions should be about solidarity there's not a lot of solidarity in professional sports unions, um, especially in terms of contracts. Guys, it's, a, you know, they don't care. It's, I'm going to get mine, you get yours, I don't. They care when it comes to, you know, the league renegotiating TV deal because then that can mean a bump. That means a bump in their minimum salary floor and things like that. And then, like you said, the star player can be like, well, I'm looking out for the little guy. You know, no, you're not really. Like, you're not. But... It, it, from everything I've seen, it feels very, we see you, we hear you kind of vibe. And mm. frankly, I think you have to address that the racial component in it, in that it's overwhelmingly targeting Latin American players. Um, and that a lot of pro the most, the highly paid players in the league, but it's, you know, like Mike Trout, just a white guy. You know, and so and a lot of the kind of yeah. name brand guys are North American. So you, you're not going to see yeah. that that solidarity in one sense. And a lot of it is too is because baseball has become kind of a sport of privilege as well in that we do, you know, you kind of think back to the old like timey 40 stuff of like, ah, they were playing stickball in the streets. You know, <laughs> that doesn't really exist anymore. Even, you know, you can talk about little leagues around here. You know, the old North End, those teams struggle to get players. You're not 
getting widespread yeah. playing of the game. And that's a lot. Some of that's just also due to baseball is kind of boring for kids. <laughs> um, so with baseball, the, the whole structure is like, if you have access to it as a North American kid, in terms of the equipment, they do these summer camps to like get your skills up. And those are thousands of dollars. So it's the whole thing of like, even at age like 14 or 15, the average probably upper middle class North American who is invested in baseball, by the time they do, if they manage to be drafted and reach the minor leagues, the commitment they're families probably put in is, is tens of thousands of dollars yeah. i mean that's the way it is with most sports in the states and it's on the flip side it's still a populous working class game in places like the dominican republic where it's yeah. it's in you know the just the fabric of their society and so no that's because the upper class families want to make sure their kids are learning english not like playing <laughs> And so instead of the exposure camps, you get these major league baseball teams placing academies in the Dominican Republic and stuff. And then they start scouting out kids as early as 12 years old and they can't sign them until they're 16, but they might make this background agreement of, Hey, you know, you're pretty good. So just don't sign with anybody, but we'll get you a signing bonus. We swear. And it'll be, it'll be a million dollars or even, hundred thousand dollars life-changing money to some of these people and then the team can say actually no we decided it's only going to be half that or no we're not going to do this deal and that is sometimes that's where the early stages of these these uh, hedge funds start jumping in is sometimes when these guys are teenagers because they get the promise of a signing bonus but i'm not going to get that or i i get it when i'm 16 but i need more money now for my family so here comes this capital fund and they say hey you know yeah we can loan you some money at a high interest rate but you're gonna be able to take care of your family they they play a lot of that up if you can take care of your family you can do all this stuff it's like any kind of uh almost like a vc firm in the sense of you're just picking investments and hoping one of them hits because when they do hit you make a lot of money off. that's what happened with this player um fran mil reyes that you had pointed out like the kid's 16 and they start waving i mean it's i don't remember it was like almost a million dollars right it, in that, that article that was in spanish um he took out a 4.8 million dollar loan uh and he for a maximum of seven years and he would need eight million dollars to pay it off because of the interest so mm-hmm. he is he's 25 years old now He's been in the majors since yeah. at least 2018. His career earnings right now are only $1.1 million. And he's not due for, a res- for free agency until 2025. So the yeah. first chance he's going to get, a front office is going to say, hey, do you want this money? And they know it's below market value. They can, and they can get it. He's going to have to take it because... He has to pay off that loan, or if he doesn't, he's running the risk of he might be broke by the time he reaches free agency because he's had to pay off the interest on that loan. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where like Rock Fence isn't the only one, but they're doing they're out there doing it, and this guy now owns the Lake Monsters. And yeah, we're, and that's what I was gonna say. We're supposed to celebrate this, like we're supposed to be excited about that. This is the new owner. I mean, not that the old owners were particularly 
wonderful, but at least they were local. At least, you know, the, the sort of uh, exploitation that they could do is was limited by the fact that they do have community ties. In terms of accountability, you mean, or in terms of... Yeah, yeah, right. like local politicians. He, he mentions he has like a second home in Shelburne, which is like, that's not endearing wait, wait. to anybody. Chris like, English has a second home. Chris English does. He's like, oh, or he's like, yeah, we have like, or his family in Shelburne. He's, he's, it's, it's a weird act because like when I was researching him, it's like he's based in the greater Boston area. And this is not his first go around owning teams. He's owned at least shares in minor league baseball teams since the 90s. But he kind of positions himself with, with the, with the uh, Southern New England teams as, oh, I'm a Boston-based guy. And then kind of in these press releases, well, I'm from Montreal, and my family has Simon Shelburne. So it's kind of a weird, like, it does feel like uh, he's just sort of, and that could be, it certainly could be true, I, but it's just as, it, it, it's, it, it kind of comes off as like, feigning local is kind of like uh right who owned that home in rutland which was so his child could go to a private school nearby or something it makes me think of the y the old ymca which was bought by i can't remember the hotel group or the hotel one of those giant ones but the vp was like well my child goes to uvm so i'm I'm, we're practically locals like it's fascinating to watch they know that there is value in this community of being someone who is local. And so they know that and they take the most tenuous of relationships and connections. Like it's, just, it's, it's amazing to me. Like they just can't be honest and be like, yeah, I'm not from here. This is a business. I plan to make a lot of money off of you. But it does feel it's, it's interesting because in, um, just in terms of the way that uh, Vermonters see like big box companies or those kinds of things coming in, this is kind of the, the equivalent of that right it's like you know i don't want to you know put the media on blast here but like a this google search of chris english baseball brought me directly to this this did not take me a whole lot of a lot so i'm sitting here reading articles which are basically the regurgitated press release and i don't understand how like did nobody think to uh evaluate that relationship you know it didn't it, it literally took me five minutes to figure out, well, okay, this is rock fence capital. So that speaks a lot to just what we've talked about, even with PCOR, is that like, it's almost like we transitioned from Ray PCOR save base to, well, this guy saved the Lake Monsters from completely going under. So we shouldn't be upset about where he gets his money, how he makes his money, and what he does with that money. It's, well, we're getting baseball for another summer. Isn't that great? You know, and then it's stuff like that. I just think it's that big sports in general just allows you to plant this just casual goodwill that almost never expires unless you are yeah. truly, you have to F up in like monumental ways to get uh, a sports fans to turn on you. At the highest levels, when you get like the fit rich fail son who just wants a play thing, like that goodwill is going to wear out because it's like these guys are just dipshits, right? And if they have, and obviously at the highest levels of the game, your record, you know, if you suck, well, people don't like watching losing shitty teams. So you're going to, you know, you're going to get it. Or like I can bring up right now, the Detroit Pistons owner is like the guy who owns a ton of private prisons. The team is downright terrible. So guess what's happening is people of Detroit are saying, 
this guy needs to sell a team because not only does he suck, but he's also just a shitty human. Right. So, but good luck. For, you know, it's the problem is you just tr- you just move it from one billionaire billionaire to another. We started with talking about a little bit about how, like, yeah, everybody loves a good a good baseball game. You know, everybody loves being able to get the family together or you know couple of friends and and just go and sit and be able to like pay enough attention to the game to know what's going on but also be able to have like an extensive very in-depth conversation because nothing fucking happens in baseball just kidding sorry Um, you have to keep your eye on the field because if a ball so that you don't get yeah you can't sue you signed away those rights so keep your eyes out so yeah there's like this this aspect where you know, and a lot of people in the community do feel like this, you know, the the root for the home team and like this, this just kind of like wholesome baseball and apple pie bullshit, right? Like there's, there's that aspect of contrasting that sentiment with what you just brought up. This is not like your high school team, you know, like these are teams that are owned by people seeking a profit at the expense of the players and the people immediately involved with your lovely apple pie experience. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, I, I mean, the, the short of it is that being a sports fan really can suck. I mean, that's just, <laughs> <laughs> we should have some sort of public, at least say, and which just sees the means of sports. Like that's kind of like where I'm going here. Is that <laughs> we? It is we. And and the one thing as fans, we the owners can place. All the you know they own and they make the profit, and the owner just takes 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 not just from you but from the people that work under him. It's inherently unjust, and it, it's yeah. I just think seize the means of the team, like and I you know it's not the perfect example, but like people can point to the Green Bay yeah. Packers. Technically, they don't have an owner; it's shareholder stuff, right? Yeah, right. It allows kind of the capitalists to roam amok mm-hmm. and like sort of free from like we said scrutiny it's just we give these people a free pass and i just i think that's it's inherently ridiculous yeah Mm, i just want to say champ deserves a living wage (laughs) that's it that's that's the way you win just be like here's champ here's where champ lives you think champ wants to live in the lake no with all the zebra muscles you just do the whole like uh (laughs) aspca ad campaign for champ where he's just sitting in just dilapidated conditions yeah. and be like, this is me because he doesn't earn a living Our page. poop goes into that lake. No, he does not want to live there. He's he's a smart creature. He knows. He knows what's going on there, but he has no choice because he's not getting paid a living wage. So, Matt, uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us, giving me just uh, another reason to not follow sports. <laughs> <laughs> Um, where where uh, people wanted to find you, uh, maybe on Twitter, where can they learn more about you or sports? Or you want just some weird factoid sort of stuff? Because I am a, such a sports nerd. You can find me at the handle is V T S H I C. That was only because at the time I think without the C it was taken. But that's where I am on Twitter. I will offer generally useless stuff to probably this audience, but sometimes I might go down the sports socialist path and I could use some backup from my reply guys. So I would appreciate it. (laughs) 
sports industry is just about the hottest take you can have. And let me tell you, people want hot takes. And they give them to me whether I like it or not. Mama's got her podcast.